Thank you, choir. You know, God has been at work in these recent days here in our church. If you're uh, visiting with us, if this is one of your first couple, two or three times with us, uh, you know, God is, uh, it seems like at every level is working here. Just last Sunday, we had uh, probably the most we've had, I guess, at least in the, the eight or nine years I've been here uh, outside of Easter. And it seems like we're, we're seeing great numbers of folks in both of our services and uh, testimonies of what God is doing uh, to see these three that are baptized this morning. Just another example of how God is working in people's lives. I, uh, I'm so thankful that God chose to plant myself and my family here at this church. He could have put me at any church on, in, this, in this, uh, this country or in this world, planted me anywhere, and I'm glad He put me here. And uh, it's not hard to get up on Sundays and Mondays and Tuesdays and through the week to come and to do what God has called me to do at a place like this. So I'm grateful. Thank you for your attention to uh, God's Word. That's what we're going to be looking at here in just a moment as we continue in our series in the book of Acts. Last weekend I was at home doing some work in the front yard and I was in the driveway and uh, something caught my eye from, uh, from, from where my truck was parked. I drive a truck and there in the driveway, something on the front of it, about where the hood ornament usually, remember hood ornaments back in those days? Remember, you know, you bought your car based on how big the hood ornament was? Some of you, probably. And you wore them, some of them, some of those you may have worn around. Uh, we won't go there. But uh, right about where the hood ornament goes on, on a truck, I noticed something that caught my eye and it was some scratches there in the front of the truck. And I thought, you know, I went over and looked at it and I thought, somebody... Somebody has vandalized my truck. I mean, maybe it was a real bad sermon I preached, which who could go back, I mean, how far to find numerous ones of those, and, uh, or, or somehow, some, you know, park a lot, somebody. but then I looked closer, and I noticed it was a series of scratches there in the, in the hood of the truck, and it formed the letter, the letter D, and I looked down beneath it, and there in the grill, there was another scratched in, the letter D, and I thought, you know, who, I began to, to wonder, I mean, who would do this, where, where did this happen, and, uh, and so I, I, you know, later on that, that weekend, um, I was out to eat, and Susie was tied up, so she had April, and I had Drew, three and a half, and Hannah, six, with me, and uh, our oldest and, and middle child. And so we're out to eat, and I decided to take advantage of the opportunity. I said, Hannah, six years old, I said, Hannah, uh, something scratched into the, the hood of my truck. Did, did you do that? And I was playing it off real cool, you know, and she said, yeah. And I said, well, honey, how did you, how did you do that? She said, with a little rock. <laughs> you ever had those days? <laughs> you ever had those weeks or maybe those, some of you might have had a day like this this morning. I don't know what your day was like before you got here. Uh, maybe for you, you've had days like that. Or maybe for you, you're, you're having a week or you're in the midst of a month or a series of months like that. And maybe for some, you know, I, I've, I've lived in this world for a while to know that sometimes those little barriers are, you know, you kind of grin and you move past it, but there are other ones that are harder to get beyond. And we face barriers. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, he said, I'm come that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. And it is true. God gives an abundant life through relationship with Christ. But there are times, perhaps, let's be honest, that it seems like maybe that abundant life missed us, or maybe for that week or that month or that year, it seems like everybody else is getting the abundant life and ours, maybe, I don't know, it's going to come sometime later. You know, God does give an abundant life, obviously. But Jesus also said in John 16 that uh, in this world, you will face tribulation. And tribulation does come. He promised, he said, take heart for I've overcome the world. But there are tribulations, there are trials that come. And for you this morning, you may have wandered in here for your first time, second time. You may have been in this church for 50 years, but your life is characterized by some barrier, some obstacle in your life. It may be significant to the point to where your faith is being shaken, your faith is being tested. Maybe for you, it's of a financial nature. You didn't see what would happen in this economy. You didn't realize you were going to get laid off or lose your position. You didn't know that your career would be phased out, and in an instant, everything you studied, everything you worked for was gone. 
You didn't think that there would ever come a time whenever you'd be wondering where the next meal would come from, and yet that's close to where you are now. The retirement that you've worked so hard to save, it just seems to be just uh, vaporizing before your very eyes. Maybe that's a barrier, an obstacle for you in your life. Maybe for you it's relational, something in your marriage or something in your family. You never expected that that person would say that they were leaving. You never expected that your child would make some of the decisions that now as a parent you're bearing the weight of. You never thought that things would turn out the way they have. Maybe for you it's some addiction or it's some other a barrier that has come in your life, something that you're scratching and clawing to move beyond. And yet in your heart you know you have a relationship with God, you know that you love Him, and yet you're wondering why do these things happen in the lives of a person who, who loves God and who seeks to serve Him, seeks to honor Him. Well, this morning in Acts chapter 12, as we uh, uh, jump into this chapter this morning, we're going to see uh, a person named Simon Peter, many of you are familiar with him, and we're going to see some, uh, an experience in his life, some experiences that he had that remind us of how we are to handle the difficulties that come, the rough spots that come, the tragedies, the trials, all of those things. We're going to look and see what he experienced, how God ministered to him on his behalf, and then what we can learn from it as a result. And so Acts chapter 12 is where we're going to be, taking a look at how we can navigate through the, through the storms of difficulty, storms of trial, <clears throat> even tragedy, come out the other side stronger, closer to God as a result. You say, Brooks, I've got huge barriers. I don't know how I'm going to learn anything from this that's going to help me. Things that I've been wrestling with forever. Just hang on for the next 20 minutes, and let's see what God teaches us through this. Acts chapter 12. Let's begin in verse 1. We covered these first five verses last Sunday, so I won't really hammer them for long. But let me just jump in with verse 1. It says, Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. This is Herod Agrippa. He is the grandson of the Herod back in the book of Luke who tried to murder all of the male children ages two and under back when Jesus was born. This is his grandson, Herod Agrippa. The setting here is the city of Jerusalem and the early church is growing. It's growing rapidly. It says in verse two that he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. In other words, it was James that was executed by beheading. He was the first... uh, uh, disciple to give his life as a martyr for the cause of Christ. Verse 3 says, When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread or Passover, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. And so Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. What, what, what Herod is doing here. He's being motivated by the enemy, by by Satan himself, to seek to diminish or to even absolutely do away with the work of God by attacking the leadership of the church. James, one of the early disciples of Jesus, has been beheaded. Simon Peter, perhaps the most visible uh, disciple of Christ, has now been thrown into prison. He's next on the chopping block, and we'll see that as we move through this passage. And so they're trying to uh, uh, end the work of God by taking out the leadership. Look at verse 6. It says, On the very night when Herod was about to bring him, Peter, forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. Now this most likely was what was called the Tower or the Fortress of Antonia. Peter would have been locked up there inside this fortress. It was inside the temple complex there in Jerusalem, the northwest corner of the temple complex. Peter would have been in there, and as was Roman custom, there would have been four squads of soldiers assigned to six-hour blocks to guard him. Those squads would have been comprised of four soldiers in each shift. In this case, we find that, sh- that, that Peter 
is chained between two soldiers, and these would have been, uh, you know, th these would not have been meek and mild little guys. These are MMA kind of guys that Peter's chained to. He's chained between these two soldiers. He's got another two guards that are guarding the door as well. He is locked down. He is locked down tight. He's not going anywhere unless God intervenes. And so here he is in this fortress. He's here in this prison. His neck is on the line. As soon as Passover is done, Herod's going to uh, execute him as well. Verse 7, it says, And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side, and he woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, that is out of the fortress, out of the temple, into the city of Jerusalem, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along the street. And immediately the angel departed from him. And so you've got Peter locked up between these two, two guards. You've got two guards at the door, and an angel that God sends appears. Strikes Peter on the side. He tells Peter, basically, get up, get dressed, get going. That's, that's kind of the rendition of what he told him to do. Peter would have had on an outer garment. It would have looked a lot like a dress. Uh, don't slam him because you know, it would have looked normal then. It looks kind of crazy to think about him wearing a dress, but you wore members only, tight roll jeans and parachute pants and all that. So... <laughs> That looks weird now, too. So that's how Peter was dressed. It was customary for the New Testament back in the first century. So he tells him, gird yourself up. In other words, gather up that long garment that you've got. Bring it up over your knees so you can get your, your feet and your knees moving. You, we're hightailing it out of here. So Peter does that. He tells him to put on his outer garment, his outer cloak. So Peter gets dressed, puts on his sandals. And then what he sees is, is he sees God deliver him in miraculous fashion. The chains not only fall off his hands, but he's taken past two squads of soldiers and the iron gate that led into the city of Jerusalem and out of this prison opens on its very own. And he finds himself, at the end of that verse, verse 10, he finds himself standing out, Peter does, in the street, and the angel departs him, leaves him there by himself. Probably he's very glad the angel told him to get dressed first now that he's standing in the middle of the street and out in public. So there is Peter. He's standing out in the street. God has delivered him. Look at verse 11. So when Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. You see, Herod executed James, the disciple, because he wanted to make the Jewish people happy. The Jews hated the Jewish Christians. And so Herod came in as a people pleaser, executes James, makes the Jewish people happy. Peter's next in line. Peter knew he was going to lose his life if he stayed in that prison. Verse 12, and when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And you're probably wondering, what is Peter doing at this house? Well, in the first century, remember, you've got a lot of people that are coming to Christ that are of a Jewish heritage. They're in the city of Jerusalem here. The Hellenistic Jews, those that had a, 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 a Greek culture, have already left the city, most of them. They're sharing the gospel all over the world. It's the Jews by birth, by heritage, that have stayed largely in Jerusalem, those that have become Christians. They didn't have a building big enough for these early believers, and so it was customary through the first century for them to meet in homes. We can assume here that Mary, the mother of Mark, this Mark is the same one that wrote the gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This Mary, who was Mark's mother, was probably a woman of great wealth. She probably had a large house, Thus, a lot of room for a lot of Christians. She had a servant, 
So we can assume from that, again, she was a woman who was a woman of wealth. And the early believers, many of them at least, would come to her house, and it's there in Jerusalem that they would assemble. Peter knew this. As soon as he gets out of jail, he comes straight to her house, and he begins banging on the door of the gate. And this is where it gets a little bit, a little bit comical, because there's a girl named Rhoda, the servant, who comes, and she, uh, verse, uh, look at what it says in, in verse 14. It says, when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but she ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. Well, they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and so they kept saying, it is his angel. And so here, here's what's happening. Peter is set free. God has, has worked in his life a whole lifetime worth of experience here. And he's standing at the door thinking probably at any time Herod's guys are going to be coming for him. He's banging on the door of the gate. Rhoda comes in, and it's one of those, ah, kind of moments. She runs back inside. I mean, the guy just got out of jail for crying out loud. She leaves him on the street. She runs in, tells people, and just like many of us as Christians, isn't it just like us? She comes in and says, basically, our prayers have been answered. And what do they say? You're out of your mind. Boy, isn't that like us? You know, we get in a tight spot. We get a diagnosis or we get a, you know, a, a pink slip or you get that notice that everything's changing. And we pray and we pray and we pray but we really don't expect God to do anything. And if he were to do something, if he were to heal us, or if he were to repair that brokenness, if he were to, to, whatever we need, if he were to do it, we would say, you're out of your mind, he'll never do it. And that's what they were, that's where the church was. They prayed, but they did not seem to have faith. And it's not our faith that moves the will of God. <laughs> it's the will of God that moves the will of God. God doesn't jump at our faith as though we can believe hard enough and it motivates him to act. We trust because God is a God who loves us when we have a relationship with Christ. He has committed himself to us. And when we pray, we partner with him in whatever his answer might be. And this church was praying, yet they didn't expect God would do anything. Verse 16, it says, But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him. They were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent. Yeah, you know, I wonder, sometimes, I don't know, maybe it's ADD, but I read little things in the Bible and I wonder what it must have looked like. How did he motion for them? You got a room full of people, a house full of people. How do you think Peter motioned for them? I mean, was it like, Wah! you know, was it like, Ch-ch-. he probably didn't do that one because he knew that. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, he, somehow he gets their attention. And he's like, you know, just, just quiet down crazies. Verse 17 says, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. You're thinking, whoa, whoa. Now, verse two tells me that James has already been executed. So what's going on here? This is a different James. The James that was executed in verse two was the brother John. He was one of the disciples of Jesus. This James is one of the half-brothers of Christ. It's the same James that would write the book of James later in your New Testament. It's this James that is pretty much the the pastor, the lead, the head of the church in Jerusalem at this time. And so Peter says, report to James. Tell the other brothers in Christ what has happened. Then he left and went to another place. Verse 18, now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers. That's putting it mildly. As to what could have become of Peter. You see, the Justinian Code for Romans required for a a guard, prison guard, that if he let his prisoner go free, if he escaped, 
whatever sentence was due to the prisoner would then be carried out against that prison guard. That's how we know that Peter was not in jail just to harass him. He was in jail to be executed. Why? Because look at the next verse, verse 19. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. And then he, more than likely Herod, is who it's referring to here, went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. It's a dramatic series of events, miraculous in nature. And so what is it that we can learn from that? I want to give you one thing to jot down and then a few that will shape it just a bit. One thing to jot down. Following God's lead turns barriers into stepping stones. When we come up against obstacles in our lives, when we come up against those barriers, some of the things that I've already described, if we are willing to follow the lead that God has for us, which begins first in relationship with Jesus Christ, and then continues as we surrender ourselves to God, to, uh, to Christ daily, if we follow His lead, even in the midst of trials, tribulations, difficulties, curveballs, whatever you want to call it, if we follow His lead, what we'll see is over time, on His timetable, not ours, that He'll turn those barriers, obstacles, difficulties, trials into stepping stones in our lives. Now, look back through this passage real quickly, and I want to just pull out for a moment. What are some of the barriers, the physical barriers that Peter faced? First of all, he had chains on his hands. He had uh, uh, guards that were there guarding him, two side by side, two more at the door. Verse 10 says he was led through a second series of guards. There was an iron gate that blocked him inside the prison, out from freedom. All those things God dealt with, and he dealt with very, very quickly. But at the end of the day, what happened was is that this angel that God had, had orchestrated to lead Peter out to freedom brought him to a, to a street there in the city of Jerusalem. And the point was that Peter had to not just trust God, but he also had to follow him as well. God does not promise that he will live the Christian life for us. He does promise, however, that he will live the Christian life through us. John 15, right? I'm the vine, Jesus says. You're the branches. Abide in me. You'll bear much fruit. Why is that? Because God produces his life through us. doesn't mean we're little gods. It just means that he produces the Christian life through us when we abide in him. However, he will not live the Christian life for you. You cannot pray a little prayer, Jesus, save my soul, and then put it in neutral and expect that God is going to accomplish his work for you. No, he will give us what we need. He pours everything for godliness into our lives. He saves us, redeems us, makes us right with himself through Christ. But he also calls us to follow him. And there are times, I'm telling you, when we come to a fork in the road in our lives and we face decisions and we have to decide, am I going to follow my way or am I going to follow his way? If we follow our way, we pay a cost. It takes us out of the will of God. Doesn't mean he won't redeem. Doesn't mean he won't restore when we come back to him in repentance. But we, we have to face a decision many times as to whose leadership we're going to follow. And I'm just saying, we see from Scripture, even in this example from a physical, literal perspective, that whenever we come to places in our lives where we face barriers, if we follow His lead, He'll turn those barriers into stepping stones that what lead us into a deeper walk with Himself. In the midst of this whole circumstance that Peter faced, there were three things that, that are significant, I believe. And I, I just want to throw them out there to you real quickly because I think they play into what Peter experienced. And the first was the prayer, prayers of the people on Peter's behalf. You know, if you're in the midst of, if you're in the midst of a difficult time today and you have a relationship with Christ, it is so important 
<laughs> that you draw close to the heart of God in prayer. That you pull in, draw in, press in close to Him in prayer. Why? So that He can be informed of your situation? No, God knows what's going on in your life. But whenever we draw close to Him in prayer, what happens oftentimes is we begin to experience the peace of God that transcends all understanding, Philippians 4 tells us, that begins to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Did you know that 70% of the prayers in the New Testament or in Scripture are intercessory prayers? They're prayers prayed from one person for another, 70%. Which leads us to the second thing that's important, not just drawing close to the heart of God in prayer, but we also see in this passage that there was a, a sense of real community. Peter understood the need for community. It was the community of believers that prayed for him. It was those people in Jerusalem that Peter knew he could come to whenever he had a need in his life. Now, granted, they might lock him outside the, the gate there for a little while, but they would be there for him. And Peter understood that he could not make it in the Christian life without those others around him. And, and let me just say this before we move on, is that you and I were designed for the Christian life to be lived in community. The greatest capacity for your life to experience change, real change to come on every level and every facet is in the context of community. And whenever you come on a Sunday morning, I'd be willing to say there's not a lot of community that takes place here during this hour and 15 minutes. I mean, you stand up here and watch you know, a, a guy preach, talk to you for 30, 35 minutes, 40 if I really get going, if I feel energetic. But there's not a lot of community. You get like 30 seconds. Nathan says, let's take time to greet one another. And you're right back to your seat, looking straight ahead again like cattle. I don't know what that means even. There's not a lot of community here. That's why we do what we do in regards to small groups, with Sunday school, with dive. We encourage people to be a part of community. Why? Because you and I were not designed to live the Christian life as Lone Ranger Christians isolated unto ourselves. There have been times in my life as a believer, going all the way back to when I was in college at Georgia, all the way up through the present day in my own ministry right now today, when I can look back and see that God put people in my life that helped to shape my life into what it is today. Now, some of that I can blame on them. <laughs> But there's a lot of good that has come in my life. Why? Because it's been lived in community. And Peter had that. It's significant that once he got let out of jail, he hightails it right straight to where he knew the believers were going to be. And that's significant. The third thing that stands out was submission. Submitting to God's direction. And I would even say submitting to God's direction in advance. In other words, signing the blank check before God fills in the amount. Peter had such peace. The night before his execution, he's sleeping like a baby. There have been times of difficulty. You've slept like a baby, right? Waking up every two hours, screaming and crying, right? <laughs> Peter had peace. The night before his execution, he sleeps. Sleeps so soundly, the angel, it says, had to strike him on the side to wake him up. The peace doesn't come because he bought motivational tapes. Peace didn't come because of anything significant that Peter did on his own. It came because he walked with God. He trusted that God's will was best, and he had surrendered to that fact long before this night ever came. You know, I wonder for you, in your own life, what, what difficulty is it that you face that has brought such chaos to your life? 
And in the face of that, how willing are you to draw close to God in prayer if you're a believer, if you have a relationship with Christ? How quick are you to surround yourself with other believers that you know will be strength for you? For some, you may not be strong enough to lean on God. Listen carefully. But there are people that would be more than glad, more than happy to lean on God for you as you lean on them. Does that make sense? And so are you surrounding yourself with community? And perhaps most importantly, are you surrendered to the will of God? And if you are, understand that God's will may not lead where you think it will. This principle sounds a lot like a health and wealth thing, doesn't it? Like I'm going to say, well, following God's lead turns barriers into stepping stones. Now I'll go out and buy my tapes. It sounds a lot like that, I'll be honest. Understand that it's not a health and wealth thing. How do I know that? Because I have a sneaky suspicion that those same Christians that prayed for Peter probably prayed just as fervently for James. James's life ended by the sword. Peter was set free. Why is that? No idea. Wrapped up in the sovereignty of God. But what I do know is that when we trust him, when we surround ourselves with other believers and we draw close to the heart of God in prayer and we surrender ourselves to the will of God as believers, whatever he has marked out for our lives will be sufficient. It'll be for our good, for his glory. And there are many times across the journey that God changes our desires to match his along the way. Flash back to my driveway last weekend. I see my truck. I take my kids out to eat. I say, Hannah, did you do this? She said, yeah. I said, honey, what did you use to do this? She said, a little rock. I said, well, honey, why did you put the letter D? You blaming it on Drew? <laughs> Why'd you put the letter D? You know what she said? For daddy. Hey, I'm not buffing those scratches out anytime soon. <laughs> and I'll just tell you, it doesn't matter if they stay there until the day I die. What looked like an inconvenience and a little trial, something that I didn't really want, somehow along the way, by one little word, Daddy, now marks itself as a blessing in my life. I don't have all the answers, but one thing I know is that life is hard, sometimes by our own choices and sometimes by others. But when we allow Jesus to enter into that difficulty, we surround ourselves with others and we take our heart to his in prayer and we surrender ourselves to whatever he chooses, we can see him do the same. Those barriers, those difficulties become stepping stones in our lives that take us deeper, 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 finding more and more fulfillment that only he can give. Let's pray. I know that for some this morning, you're right there in the midst of that difficulty. And I can promise you from experience and from God's word that God knows right where you are. He knows just how badly you hurt. He knows how big the struggle is, and he knows how he's going to lead you through. It may take longer than you think, or it may come sooner than you expect. But he has a purpose, and he has a plan. The best thing you can do is to draw near to his heart, to surround yourself with other believers, and surrender today that, God, whatever you will, I'll follow. For those that don't know Christ this morning, the best decision, the first decision for you is to turn from that sin that separates you from God and to trust your life to Jesus Christ. He died for you, he rose again, and he'll take over your life if you just invite him to do that. 
So, Lord, this morning we thank you. We thank you that you're a God who loves us. We thank you that you're a God who's paid for our sin. We thank you that through Christ we can have a relationship with you. Lord, we're reminded all too often that we still live in a world that's fallen. Tough days come. Difficulties make their way in, even to the best of lives. And yet, Father, we thank you that you give us the capacity to walk in victory. You give us the capacity to experience joy. And Lord, you enable us to be able to walk a walk and live a life that is fulfilling, that's not dependent on our circumstances outwardly, but it's dependent on your presence within us. And so I pray today for those that don't know Christ, that today, right where they sit, Lord, with a simple childlike faith, they'll invite Jesus Christ, God himself, who's paid for their sin on the cross, risen again, to come in and take over, not just their circumstance, but their whole life. Lord, I pray that for each of us as believers, that we would trust in you, no matter what the circumstances may be, that we can walk in joy, knowing that you're going to deliver us. And Lord, when our time on this earth is over, we have heaven that waits. And so we thank you, God, that you do all things well. Bless now the decisions that are made. Bless now the decisions that will, be, that will be decided upon here in these next couple of moments, Lord, some that will be of eternal value. So we pray that you'd bless now these choices and these, these decisions that we make. May they be pleasing to you. May they follow your leadership in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.